Assurance of Pardon is sponsored by Logos Bible Software, the most advanced Bible study tool for both ministers and laypeople. Available on iOS and Android for phones and tablets, as well as on your Windows or Mac computer or laptop. Get the most of your time in the scriptures with Logos Bible Software. For more information and 15% off your next Logos package plus five free ebooks, visit assuranceofpardon.com slash logos. Now on with the show. Welcome to Assurance of Pardon, Episode 11, a podcast about the gospel, the Bible, the church, what it all means, and why it all matters. I'm Scott Davis, pastor of Hope Presbyterian Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I'm Gage Jordan, an intern at Christ Church Conway in Conway, Arkansas, and a seminary student. Gage, excited to be back. We've been we've been a little uh, sporadic, a little hit and miss, and not posting our 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 podcast episodes with the frequency that we should have, you would think <laughs> that the pandemic, you would think that the, uh, the, the Corona apocalypse, um, would, would kind of cause us to be home more and have more time to do this, but it, it's it, life and the rhythms of life have just been so uh, interrupted by this, that I, I found myself just struggling to get stuff done in the, sure. in the normal rhythms with which we yeah, do things. Absolutely. So, Hashtag Corona apocalypse needs to be something that our, our fans start using in tweets. I want to hear, hear from you guys and see what are some things you're doing during the hashtag Corona apocalypse. We want to hear from you. It, it's a, it's, it's a difficult, it really is uh, all kidding aside. It is a difficult and, and strange season in the life of the church to be in a, in a situation where we, we, um, it is where it is inadvisable of us to gather together corporately. Um, so it's been, it's been a struggle for, for me as a pastor and for our congregants to just think through what does the Christian life look like when we can't gather together corporately. Uh, I, I've been, you know, you'll see a lot of people say, this is not a big deal that we can't get together because the church is not a building. And I just, I, and I get the spirit with which they say that. But it is a gathered group of people. It is right. The, there's the um, we've been uh, just this is we didn't talk, we didn't say we were going to talk about this. But one of the I want to share kind of some ways we've been thinking about online worship services during this period, because as we're recording this today, it's April 3rd, 2020. And uh, we've now done two online worship services. And some churches that are doing an online service are trying to replicate a hundred percent exactly like what Sunday morning looks like. And if you're a, if you're a high production value church to begin with, with electric guitars and a fog machine and uh, a, a, a big light show, uh, you probably are already streaming uh, to, to big screens in the sanctuary or the auditorium. And so arms open wide. So you can see my tattoo. So, you know, I have a past, right? Contemporary. That's a, that's an obscure reference that we'll have to put a link to in the show notes. Um, yeah, for sure. A few a few years ago, but it, if if you're a high production value church, then this live stream probably doesn't look much different because um, you've already kind of been piping the entire service through uh, some sort of digital means and pushing it out. But if if you're a small church who is pretty traditional and has a pretty pretty traditional way of, of worshiping 
then this is a little bit different. And and one of the things that we do, and I know that that Kevin Hale and the elders at Christchurch Conway, where you are, have been doing, is not trying to replicate everything that we do on Sunday morning, but just feed the people well. Right. But at the same time, you want them to long for the time in which this will be over. Mourn this. We I would hate for somebody to watch our Facebook live and say, that was just as good as what I get when I get in my car and drive there and sit with those people. Um, because it's not, it, it's not, and it shouldn't be. It's a, it's a, a sad time in, in, uh, in, in the book of, in the, in the new Testament, we see the, the spirit pleased to use remote means to communicate, um, to communicate with people. You see the apostle Paul using a very low tech method of handwritten, hand delivered letters to churches. Uh, boy, that's, that's about as socially distant as you can get. Right. But in and, every single letter, what does he say? I can't wait to see you. That's exactly I right. So you have two, you. you have two things going on there. You have, you have the, the spirit of God being pleased to use a handwritten hand delivered letter uh, for Paul to be able to teach and correct and rebuke and encourage and love uh, and send messages to these congregations. And yet, even so, he says, but my desire is to see you face to face. He doesn't see the he doesn't see the the epistle or the letter writing as being his favorite thing. He would rather be physically with them. So, yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of that. Speaking of that, that brings us to what we're going to talk about today. We've been ta- talking about theology in the Bible, and in each of our previous 10 episodes, we've taken an aspect of our Sunday morning liturgy and unpacked it, talked about why we do what we do. And this one is one that we cannot do at all with uh, over over the internet. Yeah, or absolutely. We shouldn't try. <laughs> we, we need to be physically. We can't even do it being socially distant. We can't even do it. Uh, um, being separated and stuff like that. And that thing that we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about baptism. Now, some of our, our listeners will say, didn't we just talk about baptism? Wasn't that, wasn't that like episode eight or nine? Episode eight. Yeah. So this is actually part two, uh, of our discussion on baptism. We, we got some feedback from, from listeners and, and friends that said, Hey man, I really in, enjoyed uh, the episode that you guys did. Uh, would have loved for you guys to cover uh, a few more aspects of baptism. So this is baptism part two, uh, the sequel, right? So we're hoping um, that it's not like movies where the the sequel is never as good as the original. But um, we're going to cover a few things today, um, kind of in service to our brothers and sisters who, who mentioned a, a few things, Scott, you want to kind of lay out where we're headed? Yeah, of course. Uh, and I'm, uh, adjusting my microphone here. So apologize to the listeners, to the noise, but, um, well, it, it, what we've been endeavoring to do throughout this is, is introduce people to, um, Presbyterian and reformed understanding of things. And last, on um, uh, last time when we talked about baptism, we talked about the fact that one of the scandalous things to our Baptist and evangelical friends that they really struggle to understand is that we is the subjects of baptism. And that is uh, who do we baptize? And uh, many of our friends uh, outside of the reformed world find it problematic that we would baptize people 
that we would baptize infants, that we would baptize young children who have not yet made a profession of faith. And so right. what we spent some time talking about in episode eight is we talked about who are the subjects of baptism, um, and they are believers in their household. Um, however, and, and hopefully, hopefully if that was something that you're not familiar with, hopefully our explanation of some of that was helpful. But there's another aspect of the way that we baptize that is often problematic to people. And that other aspect of the way we baptize is not just the subjects of baptism, but the mode of baptism, um, i.e., uh, how much water do you use? Yeah, so the, you know, they are upset with the fact that we, we baptize infants, um, and then they think um, that. Uh, we don't use enough water, which, um, you know, when I get into these conversations, it's it's really, I have found personally that it's more the infant baptism piece um, that uh, people can't get around more than it is the water. But there are there are brothers and sisters, uh, particularly of, of the credo position and, and of, of Baptist backgrounds that... Um, they really put a lot of emphasis on immersion, right? That uh, it's not enough just to pour or sprinkle uh, the person that you have to actually immerse them into water. And and, and one of the reasons that they um, take this position is because they, they go like Romans six, where it, where it uh, pictures baptism as the death and burial, you know, death and resurrection uh, of Jesus and us, us being symbolized in, in, in dying uh, to ourselves and rising in, into Christ. Uh, we're buried with him in baptism, raised to newness of life. You'll, you'll see that phrased and hear that phrase used a lot. Um, and so because of that viewpoint, oftentimes immersion is such a big deal to our credo friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and what what our hope is and our prayer in this episode is not to 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 come alongside and, and sort of slap you on the wrist and and cause you to to stop thinking, stop believing in immersion and start believing in in sprinkling or pouring, but actually just to just to uh, open up the scriptures together and think through this and maybe uh, ask our immersion only friends to maybe loosen their grip on the immersion only position and, and maybe cause them to say, I see where my Presbyterian friends are coming from with sprinkling. I see where they're coming from with, with pouring. So that's our hope. Our hope is that you will loosen your grip on the mode of baptism and, uh, by the way, there's another sort of inconsistency in my mind, and that is sometimes I will visit with some of my Baptist friends when we have this discussion, and they'll say, well, baptism has to be done by immersion. And so uh, I'll say, well, let's talk about that. Why do you believe baptism has to be done by immersion? And they'll say, well, because clearly that's how it was bat that's how it was practiced in the new testament clearly from the text jesus was immersed clearly from the text all the baptisms in the new testament were immersion and so that's the way we have to do it and i i say well i, I want to talk a little bit about um how jesus was baptized i want to talk a little bit about some of the baptisms that we see in the book of acts but before we do that let me see if i'm understanding you correctly 
uh, you have an ordinance, as they would call it an ordinance, we would call it a sacrament. You have an ordinance or a sacrament um, of baptism, and you're saying, I want to do it exactly the way that it was done in the New Testament. Is that right? And it, it, Yes. And, and if we're not doing it the way that it's done in the New Testament, then we're doing it wrong, and we need to stop. Am I understanding your argument correctly? And they will, of course, say yes, and I will say, so let's talk about the Lord's Supper. When you practice the Lord's Supper, do you always use unleavened bread and wine. Oh, of course not, brother. And no, of course we we use grape juice and we use uh, you know, these little packaged crackers that we buy or we use bread or uh and I'll say do you think Welch's grape juice and prepackaged little wafers from the Christian bookstore or uh, a loaf of uh, uh of, you know, King's Hawaiian rolls torn into pieces are you convinced that that's exactly what was being used in the Bible? Well, no, but you know, it's, it's symbolic. And so it doesn't really matter. So it's symbolic. And it doesn't really matter. That's exactly the opposite of the argument that you're making when it comes to baptism with baptism. You're holding a very literalistic point of view uh, that you, it literally has to be done the way that you're convinced it was done in the, in the new Testament. But when we get to the Lord's supper, when we get to communion, you are very quick oftentimes to say, you know, the, the, the wine doesn't have to be wine and the bread doesn't have to be that kind of bread. And, and so we just want to maybe ask our Baptist friends to, to have some consistency there between, between the sacraments, between the ordinances. Um, so Gage, you, you grew up in a Baptist context. Yeah. So, um, I did. And, and that was always, you know, baptism by immersion. I went to a Baptist college and it was baptism by immersion and immersion is the only way to do it. So let's ask the million dollar question, Scott, um, does the mode of baptism, does how much water we use and the way in which we do it, does mode matter? Uh, it doesn't matter to us. We have a practice with which we do it, but uh, it doesn't matter to us. So if if a, a Southern Baptist or um, or um, uh, a, a evangelical person from some other uh, stream comes to our church and they are believers in Christ and they say, I would like to join your church, we will say, have you been baptized? And they will say, yes. And I'll say, well, tell me about that. They say, well, I was baptized uh, when I made a profession of faith um, at, at age 14. Um, was it was it Trinitarian? Was it, I baptized you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit? Yes. Did they use water? Yes. We say, great. Praise God. We will receive that baptism as being a valid baptism. We're not going to proclaim that the baptism that was placed upon you by your former church is illegitimate. Right. Even even though, uh, so what if, Scott, what if you have someone that um, comes to your church that grew up um, Methodist or grew up Catholic? I know, Scott, you've mentioned before you grew up Methodist, right? So if you, if you were baptized— um, in the Catholic Church, as a baby, are we going to ask you to be rebaptized? By no means. By no means, we're not. We're not. Uh, again, baptism is legitimate if it's done with water, 
in a church in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or, or by a church, I should say. It doesn't have to be physically inside a church building. So we would we would accept a baptism, uh, a Roman Catholic baptism for sure. Uh, but a number of uh, again, a number of our our Christian tradition friends that are immersion only would not. They would say. Uh, it, there are there are of course uh, congregations that would rebaptize you even coming from one Baptist church to another from a, a you know from a, a Southern Baptist to a missionary Baptist church would rebaptize you uh, all over again so so there are a number of ways that you can be immersion only but it doesn't matter to us um, if it doesn't matter to us if you were baptized by immersion or by sprinkling. So we would receive that. I was baptized by sprinkling uh, in a Methodist church at about age 13 uh, after going through confirmation classes. Um, yeah, for sure. So th- let me ask you this though. Part of the, the reason we even created this podcast is to help uh, those that maybe are unfamiliar with the reform faith and in, in particular, our strand of the reform faith and in Presbyterianism Um you come to the confession of faith, which is our doctrinal statement. This is these are the standards by which uh, we hold to, um, and this helps explain our faith. Right? We don't believe it. It adds to scripture, or replaces scripture. We just think it's a faithful summary of what scripture teaches. Um, well, when you get into the chapter on baptism in the confession, and you get into point three in that chapter, it says. Dipping of the person into water is not necessary, but baptism rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So on that outset, and granted it's 500 year old language, but on the outset it says, hey, you know, dipping isn't necessary. And, you know, dipping in their case, immersion isn't necessary, but there's a right way to do it. And the right way to do it is... Uh, by it being administered through uh, pouring or sprinkling. So unpack that for us, Scott. Is is there an inconsistency in the confession? Are we are we basically telling our Baptist friends, hey, immersion isn't necessary, but we think there's the right way to do it, and it's our way or the highway? Or what, what do we mean there? Right. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so we, we actually do believe that the baptisms that you see in the New Testament, baptism of Jesus, the baptisms in the book of Acts, we actually do believe that that is uh, um, that that was most likely was uh, pouring or sprinkling. And so uh, I, I want to and again, my, my goal is not to change your mind on that as much as it is to get you to loosen your grip. And so um one of the places that people will so often go when it comes to uh, baptism is one, they'll say that baptism is a word that always means immersion to, 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 to submerge. Um, and that's, that's, it, it has a broad lexical range, the various forms of that. We're not going to completely unpack all of those here. I want to just, I, I want to just go to if, if people are listening along and they want to go to Matthew uh, in Matthew chapter three, for the baptism of Jesus um, in verse 13, it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus said, let it be so now for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. 
Uh, and, G- and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so our Baptist friends would say, well, there it is right there. He went, uh, he was baptized Uh, immediately. He went up from the water. Now um, that could mean immersion, but it also could mean when he came up from the water, it could mean that he just walked back up onto the shore. So uh, it is quite likely that Jesus was, uh, went into the water. Uh, Let's look at Acts chapter eight while I'm talking about this um, for the, 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 the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. John is baptizing people in the river Jordan. People are coming in and they are standing next to John or kneeling next to John. And he is pouring a vessel uh, of water over their head as a, as a picture of this ceremonial washing. And after that is over, he comes up out of the water, meaning he walks back up onto the shore. If you look at the, the, the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch uh, in Acts chapter eight, uh, it says, and as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. See, they both went down into the water again, because it's referring to going from the river bank or whatever this, whatever this body of water is going from the bank into the water. So both of them get into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took spirit, Philip uh, took Philip away. And so same type thing going on after the baptism, they both come up out of the water. Now we don't think that Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch and then the Ethiopian eunuch turned around and baptized Philip. Right. That they both uh, that Philip said, you know what? Now that we have all this, I tell you what, I haven't been baptized by immersion yet. So why don't you baptize me and we'll both knock this out for both of us? No, rather, both of them went down into the water and and then both of them came up out of the water. And so unless you're going to make an argument that the Ethiopian eunuch baptized Philip or that they both simultaneously baptized themselves, you have to admit that the language here perfectly allows for a situation where uh, where they both go into the water and a vessel, a cup, uh, a, a flask of some sort is poured over the head of the one being baptized. Yeah, one of the things that we so often talk about when we talk about uh, the Lord's Supper and when we talk about baptism is we, and we talked about this on our Lord's Supper episode, and we talked about this on our baptism part one episode, is that these sacraments are signs and signs are small visible things that point to or testify to the reality of a larger invisible thing. And what the reformers were so quick to say is that we don't want to confuse the sign with the thing signified. And, and, and this is, which is what's going on there when it says not as a removal of, of dirt from the body, right? It's not this physical water, but it's pointing forward to something else. And so just like my wedding ring, we used this analogy before, my wedding ring is a sign of the covenant that my wife has made with me. And I wear it as a sign that I believe her promises in the covenant that she'll be faithful to me. And so to suggest that it has to be, uh, um, it has to be immersion 
is to confuse the sign and the thing signified. Baptism is beautiful. Baptism is is effective because it points to the one who brings this about, and that is Christ himself through his work on the cross. And and to suggest that the baptism didn't take or the baptism was uh, of no value if it's not immersion is really a almost a Protestant form of transubstantiationism that something magical is happening there. That's the argument. There's a great old book. We'll put a link in the show notes, a great old book written in the 1800s called William the Baptist. And it's a story of, uh, of, uh, it's, it's about baptism, but it's written in a story sort of way about a Presbyterian minister who one of his congregants marries a young Baptist man and they just agree that she's a Presbyterian and he's a Baptist, but they're going to get married and they're going to go to church separately. And, uh, that's all, uh, that's all going fine until they have a baby and she wants the baby to be baptized. And so the bulk of this book is conversations, fictional conversations between her Baptist husband and her Presbyterian pastor about baptism. And they spend a lot of time talking about the mode of baptism. And he makes that point in the book that to, he makes that point in the book that to suggest that you have to be uh, baptized by immersion or it doesn't work is a form of transubstantiation, that there's something magical happening in the process of immersion. Well, hopefully this has been helpful um, as part two of of baptism, baptism conversation, the sequel. Um, that concludes our, our time for today. Scott, any, anything you want to add as we close? Um, yeah, keep, uh, keep, uh, liking and rating and subscribing on, on social media. Tell your friends about this. If there's a topic you'd like us to talk about, would you email us through any of our social media channels? By the way, we're going to put some of the resources that we mentioned in the show today. We're going to put them in the show notes. That book, William the Baptist is by James McDonald Cheney. And I'll, uh, we'll put a link to that, uh, in the, in the show notes. So you can, so you can check that out. And so if you have any questions from past episodes or the ones we're getting ready to release, we'd love to hear from you, dialogue with you, um, hit us up on any of the social media platforms or choose a message through the website. Um, and this is Assurance of Pardon.